This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. So we talked about this earlier. It's among our most read stories on the Bloomberg about bonds, uh, bonds and stocks falling in unison. It's something they don't usually do. And every time we've seen this in the past couple of decades, two decades to be exact, three times we've seen this to be exact, each episode was followed by an equity market slump. Let's get into this with Jeffrey Cleveland. He is chief economist at Payton and Regal, based in Los Angeles in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. Um, nice to have you here. Good afternoon, Carol. Good nice a- to see you. Yeah. Um, Talk to me about this uh, trade that we're seeing where stocks and bonds are both falling in unison. Does that kind of set up, um, I don't know, a red light to you, a little warning sign? We do have some uneasiness, I think, on bond trading desks uh, across the world because of of what we've seen in the Treasury market. And we have some heavy supply tomorrow, I know, in the 30-year auctions. And we have CPI tomorrow morning. Right. And if you think about it, the Treasury move that we've seen year-to-date, 10-year yields are up about 80 basis points hasn't really been driven by inflation. It's been driven more by, I think, strong economic growth and a repricing of Fed expectations. Right. That's what's been driving Treasury yields. So now, on the eve of a CPI... That's real, isn't it? Or is it not? Say that again? It's real. Yeah. Versus if inflation's moving it or what? Well, I just think now traders are sitting around thinking, well, tomorrow we get CPI. If we get any signs that inflation is bouncing back or even picking up more than expected, Mm -hmm. that would be another leg, I think, up in Treasury yields. So that's the uneasiness that we that we see here on the eve of the, the CPI report. And is that why we're seeing some of the nervousness within the equity markets I as well? I think so, yeah. It's still low, though, by historical yes. perspective. And that's why I wouldn't – I think your question was, is this a, red, uh, a warning sign? Or, I think it's noise. It's temporary. There's some discomfort. There's some uneasiness was, is the word I would use in, in the bond market but also in the equity market. And that will sort itself out. I think the fundamental question is – is the economy on the cusp of a slowdown? Are we going to see a weakening in growth? That's a scenario I would be more worried about. Equity. Are we? I don't see that. Why? We are 112 months into this cycle. I think we'll grow at about 3% for the full 2018. That would be the best year of growth in this cycle. We could grow at 2.5% next year. And that would mean this would be the longest cycle on record. So it's not about to end. I don't see any signs that we're following to, to show us that the end is near. What's keeping it going? Well, the consumer looks excellent. I mean, the consumer is still spending at a, a pretty good clip. That's mm-hmm. a, a fundamental driver. Business CapEx is holding up pretty well. We expect that to maybe even pick up a little bit. If we could only get some help from the, the residential housing side, that's been something missing from this cycle. That could extend it. Well, Jeffrey, let's go there because I was listening to Bloomberg Radio this morning. They were talking about the home builders mm-hmm. have really taken a beating. Now, mind you, I think go back last year and you saw them do a pretty significant run up. What's going on in the housing sector? Is it not enough supply? What is it I that's holding it back? I think the knee jerk reaction when rates go up, when you have a uh, maybe an unexpected to some move in treasury yields, mm-hmm. people say, oh, you have higher rates. Who's going to be hurt? And then they start, you know, 
selling off the, the people they think will be hurt. And you, I think the first thing that people react is, oh, home sales will decline. People aren't going to be able to purchase a home given well, higher mortgage rates. do people rate. say that or is that happening? Well, actually today, maybe in the, the mortgage uh, purchase applications that we've seen, the, uh, we see a little tick up in the, the mortgage applications. So it's possible, it's possible that that story plays out, that higher rates keep people from buying. However, I don't know. I think this jury is still out on that story. But if it does, okay, so walk along this path with me. So if indeed that's what's happening and people are not going to be buying homes, that's a big catalyst for economic growth, right? You buy a home, you you fill it with a lot of junk and all that stuff. I mean, if we see that, does that say something to you about where we are in this economic cycle and subsequently this market cycle? I think you've identified one of the biggest risks to my rosy view that I just laid out for you before. The the housing sector has been a great leading indicator for the U.S. economy. Mm-hmm. And so if that starts to weaken more materially, then I think that would be, that would be the red flag alert that I would be looking more at. And I, I don't think that's going to play out, but it's a risk. Um, that's a risk. Okay. And then, you know, this has been such a different market cycle because we came off the financial crisis. You had the Fed doing X, Y, Z. You had global central banks doing X, Y, Z. Um, does the next downturn, do we have any indication? Can we look into a crystal ball and say, okay, it's going to be like other market downturns we've seen? Or I remember, was it a few months ago, somebody said, it's going to be a blip if we get one. I don't think it's going to be like 2008. I don't. The thing that was unique about 2008 was it was a seizing up of the global financial system. But it doesn't system. have to be 2008. It could be half of that. It could be a third of that. And that's yeah, still significant. It could be more like, you know, if you go back and look at the 2000, 2001 recession on a GDP chart now, it does look like a blip. So it could be more of a sectoral type issue. The, but I, when I'm sitting here today thinking about risks and where those might show up, you want to look for sectors that are overextended, where people are taking on debt in order to make investments. Where is that? Well, I see you, you have a big opportunity for perhaps a big red warning flag would be corporate debt. Corporate debt as a share of GDP is at all-time highs. So that is something to keep an eye on, would, would be a possible candidate. Um, globally, you have some economies that have, have taken more debt and, and credit has grown more quickly. So right. it could be... Is that corporate debt, though, in the United States more manageable? Because I'm just thinking how everybody kind of resurfaced their debt when rates were so low. We said, wow, that's a great thing. Just got about 10 seconds Yeah, left. I think it's a different animal than the mortgage debt of the last cycle. So I think even though corporate debt to GDP is high, as I said, yeah. I think it, it'll be fine. Uh, and we still like the corporate sector of the bond market. Bottom line, watch those home builders in the housing sector. Jeffrey Cleveland, he's chief economist at Payton & Regal, based in L.A. in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio on this Wednesday. TikTok, Elon, hope you're listening. Tesla's Elon Musk. He's been tweeting about punctuality. He's been tweeting about the Studebaker Museum in South Bend and the Falcon LZQ Vandenberg. That's all in the last 24 hours. Meantime, Bloomberg Terminal users are reading about Elon having just, uh, I don't know, about 143 days before creditors say, show me the money. Let's get into this story. It is among our most read uh, on the Bloomberg Terminal today. Molly Smith is corporate finance reporter at Bloomberg News in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio today. Um, Great story. This is what Mm -hmm. terminal readers are uh, reading today. Tell us what's going on. 143 days. That's it. Yep. But, you know, it's not, it sounds like, you know, when you put it in terms of days, like, wow, that doesn't sound like a lot. The truth is this is still about five months away, Tesla's largest upcoming maturity. And we think, you know, from talking to sources, it doesn't sound like the panic button is on yet. Uh, That, you know, Tesla does still have time to get this debt situation remedied. That in the amount of five months before these convertible bonds come due, 
That's basically for Musk, it would be really important that if the stock were to rise about another $100 from where it's trading at now so that those bonds can be converted into equity. And if they're not, if they don't hit that $360... You've got to pay them back? you got to pay them back. $920 million on March 1st. So almost a billion dollars. Exactly. How likely is it that it goes up another $100? I mean, I would never put anything past anything <laughs> in this market <laughs> right. environment and certainly not p- past Tesla or Elon Musk. But what are you hearing from the folks that you're talking to? I mean, this is one of the most volatile stocks out there right now. We've seen Tesla swing. I don't know if it's been $100 in a day, but certainly in the magnitude of $50 or more in a day. And we've, Listen, we were like, up at 380 uh, in, I guess, late July, mm-hmm. early August. Mm-hmm. Right. And then once it, uh, and around that level too, from the go private tweet, which right. kind of got us to the situation we're at now. But yeah, I th- from talking to sources, uh, you know, a lot of people have said, if you just look at the face value, the Tesla, as of June 30th, had $2.2 billion of cash on their balance sheet. And Elon has been very adamant in saying that that cash plus uh, cash from operations that's coming in from production is going to be able to finance ongoing operations as well as the debt maturities. That is what he's saying. It's going to be able to pay for it. They won't need additional capital. But that's where the investor community, the analyst community come in and say, yes, you might have the money exactly, but would it be wise to spend all of that? No, you really should do another capital raise to have an extra buffer. And that's what he could do. He could do another capital raise and we'd be like, okay, the story's done, right? Well, there's a little or, more to it than that. I okay. mean, it depends. Like, how would you do another capital raise at this point? The name is, I mean, there are a lot of people in the equity market who love this name. I mean, $45 billion is still a lot of love for Tesla. Uh, granted, the bonds, uh, you know, have, uh, you know, there are still 10 not, buys on it from the equity side of things, yeah. 12 holds and 13 sells. I mean, there's a fair amount of sales too, but it's not like everybody has run from Tesla. Right. Absolutely not. I mean, it's nowhere near the peak right now of what it's been, but it's also not tanking per se. And the bonds are trading in line with other C rated peers, which these bonds are rated C. Right. Doesn't look like they're distressed particularly. No one is pricing in an imminent default. So... Capital markets are still open, but would they go back for another insecure, unsecured bond? Probably not. That'd be pretty expensive. More likely a secured debt raise, maybe convertible bonds or equity also. Molly, when you, you, know, you put on your corporate finance hat uh, as a reporter and you look into this company and you're taking a look, you're doing this story, you're looking at the debt, when you look at the balance sheet, because we've had a fair amount of guests who come on and say, you know, this is not a sustainable balance sheet. Um, I mean, what do you say? I mean, there's definitely year over year revenue growth. That's pretty significant. Um, you know, earnings kind of bounces around here uh, and there is that debt, but there is cash. Right. What does the balance sheet look like? Well, when I'm putting on that corporate finance hat, I'm thinking cash flow and uh, so far, we haven't seen it's it. It's negative. It's been negative. The company has not made a profit yet in 15 years. And this is not a startup anymore after 15 years. So we're at this point looking to see the positive free cash flow, the sustainable profits, not just one quarter, but sustainable profits. And that's what Musk is saying, that that's what this quarter is going to be. You know, the second half of this year, that's when we're going to start seeing that. So uh, next earnings release is at the end of this month. And mm-hmm. I think 
those are the figures that we're all going to be looking for. So kind of a do or die. Ah, that's going to be a little extreme, but we're going to want some clarification of what they're going to do here, right? Because this is coming. It may not be, like you said, tomorrow, but it's certainly on the horizon. Right. And can he follow through on the promises? That's what we're all looking for. All right. Good stuff, as always. I know a busy day for you, Molly, so thanks for, for dropping by. Molly Smith, she's corporate finance reporter at Bloomberg News in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. Check her out on Twitter at Molly Smith News. So don't worry, everybody. Um, yeah, when it comes to the markets. Uh, what's interesting is our next guest says that he sees these markets, despite focus sometimes on trade and some other things and some other news out of Washington, he says we are in an apolitical market environment. Joe um, Heider is president at Cirrus Wealth Management, based in Cleveland, uh, making our way to our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio on this Wednesday. Welcome. Good afternoon. Apolitical, because it does feel like sometimes trade negotiations, trade talks, uh, and some other news out of uh, the administration seem to shape uh, the market environment. You say not the case or what? Well, what I'm saying is the markets are apolitical in general, but any particular piece of news that has economic ramifications, such as trade, can have particularly short-term impact on the financial markets. What do you think we should be focusing on, especially in a market environment today? I mean, we're now looking at 2% declines in the S&P and the Dow. NASDAQ's down about almost 2.7%. We're kind of hovering near our lows. We haven't seen this kind of selling. It's not runaway selling, but we certainly haven't seen these trend lines in a while. No, we certainly haven't. And I think we get lulled into a false sense of security the longer this type of market continues. And we're ta- it's healthy to take a breather. And I think in particular, we're, the market is, is a bit upset over rising interest rates. That's simply a recognition this economy is healthy and we can return to some type of normal range in interest rates and fund lending rates. So I think once we kind of take this breather, it'll give an opportunity for the markets to head upward. Because I guess the concern is, and the Fed historically has overshot <laughs> when it's <laughs> raising rates, and I guess the concern is you do too much, and of course there's a lag time between when the Fed raises rates and when it starts to impact the economy, that if it overshoots, it starts to slow down some of the economic momentum that we have. Are we in that fragile estate that that could happen? Not at this point. Obviously that's a risk, but right now, If you look at interest rates, they're still historically low. And if you look at any ratios of interest rates versus any of the other indicators, we're still uh, in a neutral or maybe uh, interest rate environment. We certainly are a long way from getting into a restrictive type of interest rate environment, which is what you'd see and really talking about. We We could get there, but I think we're at least four or five Fed moves away. Um, I'm assuming that, you know, you certainly make the rounds with clients and institutional investors that you guys have. Um, I'm always curious to know what it is that's on their minds. What do they care about? It's very easy, I think, on the coasts to get (laughs) um, fixated over Fed policy or to get fixated on the news out of Washington and so on. But I am curious. They walk in or you walk into their offices and say, well, here's what we really want to know. So that varies. (laughs) for as many clients as we have. But certainly the first thing they look at is my, is my money up or down for this period of time. Right. But the reality is what they really want to know is where we're headed, 
am I still invested appropriately? And that's what they really focus in on. They ha- they hear the noise along the way coming out of Washington. They certainly pay attention to the financial news. But what they're really focusing in and, and ask us as advisors, what are the fundamentals in the economy? How does not only America, but, but the global economy look? How does it look to you? Um, there's always worry. There's always something going on to be concerned about. Uh, but overall, if you look at the U.S. economy, we've never been stronger. And that's why it is time to raise interest rates before we have a real problem and the Fed starts reacting very quickly and overshoots the mark. Uh, it's better to start in a planned, rational basis. When do we get to a point where the Fed raising rates kind of negates the tax cuts that we've seen, certainly for corporate America? I think we're quite a ways away from that. Really? Yes. Um, I, think, I think this is a good reality check. Uh, I think one of the things that we've gotten is a little carried away with some of our projections. When you look at analysts projecting that corporate uh, corporate profit growth is going to continue at 16% per year for the next five years, we've only done that a couple of times. I was going to say, how many times have we done that before? Late, late 90s and, not, and the late 20s. So not often. I'm not suggesting that, but we don't want, really want that kind of growth uh, at that kind of un- sustained rate. We want to take breathers like we're doing right now, even though they're not fun uh, and they can be a little painful depending on how long this lasts. Where do you find in terms of the equity side of things or the corporate or the, or the fixed income, where do you find some opportunities? Just got about 30 seconds right now. Uh, I would say one is energy, mm. um, rising oil prices. Uh, that sector tends to do well in the late innings of a long bull market, and you also have a lot of dynamics working there. Um, and healthcare, I think, is another one. Fixed income, quite quite honestly, for risk adverse investors, short term rates uh, have gone way up on CDs, and it's not a bad place to park that money for the next twelve to thirty six months. And something we hadn't seen for a long, long time. That's correct. Um, thank you. Appreciate you coming in. Joe Heider, he's president at Cirrus Wealth Management based in Cleveland, finding his way to our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio on this Wednesday. The long and winding road. It has definitely been a long and winding road for Sears and a long goodbye, if you will, for America's most iconic retailer. The struggling retailer said to be preparing for a bankruptcy filing as soon as this weekend. Here to remind us of the saga and perhaps the final chapter is Kat Doherty, who is high-yield distressed debt and bankruptcy reporter here at Bloomberg News in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio on this Wednesday. Nice to have you here with us. Um, It has been quite a saga, and you and I were talking before we got going. I mean, I remember when Atlanta bought it and we were like cool what's he going to do to the brand you know mm-hmm. and there was lots of moves and so on and so forth and yet here we are how many years later and we're talking what about a bankruptcy about a bankruptcy and a store that's not much different than what it looked like when he bought it um, and I think that is part of what people are, are talking about when they're looking at this potential monumental moment of a, a filing um, if that happens when we're hearing that it will, um, th- that is is really uh, kind of the culmination of where this store has 
trucked along for the way that it for uh, as long as it has it's kind of amazing right 125 year old retailer uh i think i remember um don't laugh at me but doing a science fair and i had um uh, an aunt who uh collected antiques and she had like a copy of an old sears catalog you could (laughs) buy a house like people who would develop you know the west the frontiers would buy Mm -hmm. a house on sears i mean it, it was such a part of american history and yet it soon might be history itself what is it about the timing now because I feel like we've been talking about to some extent the demise of Sears for some time we're talking about debt right yes we're talking about debt um, and and you're right there's been little milestones along the way but what Eddie Lampert CEO owner uh, and largest lender has been doing very well is pushing off the the filing um, we saw a few weeks ago his latest proposal that he publicly displayed to lenders and to the board basically trying to think of a restructuring scenario that could happen with the company's debt uh, and also trying to f- uh, trim down on the storefronts too um, and that would be done out of court uh, Eddie was an, an ESL had said that they thought the out-of-court restructuring was the best option for the company and that it would preserve value that they thought would be lost if it was in court. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now it seems like it's it's pivoting towards a an in-court filing, uh, and it'll remain to be seen what happens with uh, the stores. I assume that a filing uh, would follow with... Uh, probably accelerated store closures. Um, and, and you're also going to start to see maybe more of a push for some of the asset sales as well. $134 million in debt. This is what we're talking mm-hmm. about. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it doesn't, I don't know, I guess it doesn't feel like a lot of debt, but I guess it is. I'm just curious why we got to this point. I mean, Eddie Lampert obviously knows kind of what the trend lines have been for this business, uh, understands the credit markets. Um, uh, I don't know. I guess it, I kind of find it baffling that we're talking about this so the 100 especially since he wants to keep it out of court it's like well you know how this plays right well the 134 million that's coming due that's this monday so that's why this we're talking about this timing and that's why there's a lot of speculation that uh it's going to be coming around that time frame um and and esl in its last proposal when it was talking about the restructuring out of court they mentioned that specific deadline october 15th or around there um as a, a restraint um something that they were looking at and basically saying hey this is a big um upcoming maturity that we have and um it's true some folks i've talked to think that they do they would have enough money to pay that off but the question is once you do that then what you're uh talking about a a store that's continuing and, and still has the same issues that it had before you make this payment. Kat, how many, we're talking with Kat Darty, a high-yield distressed debt and bankruptcy reporter here uh, at Bloomberg News. How many stores does the company have left? Because that was the initial play, I think, that everybody thought why mm-hmm. Eddie Lampert was interested. It was in, He was interested in the property. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. I don't know that that is exactly panned out. Mm-hmm. But how much real estate is left? How much is that valued at? So at its peak, it had over a 1,000 stores. I I think it was around 1,500 or so, and mm-hmm. now they've trimmed back quite a bit to between 600 and 700 stores. Uh, so that's essentially how many stores we're talking about, and that is affecting to around, I think we said, 89,000 employees, and it remains to be seen is what's it going valuable? to happen. Is it valuable property? So that's, I mean, I think it depends on who you talk to. The, the property could be used um, 
in different ways, in creative ways. It could be the space could be used for entertainment purposes. Um, other retailers could buy it, although some people I was talking to earlier today were saying that it's unlikely that there are retailers that are remaining that would want such a big space because that's the other thing right. is that these spaces that are that could go vacant or shut down, they're huge storefronts. So other retailers that are looking right. possibly to expand, they might not want all that space. Well, I'm just looking at Sears. I can't even get my head around it. It's a 48-cent stock. Uh, it's down about 87% this year, and it's about... Uh, 41% percentage of float is being shorted right now. Uh, so we'll have to see if we get some news uh, out this weekend. Kat Doherty, High Yield Distressed Debt and Bankruptcy Reporter at Bloomberg News in our studio. This is Bloomberg Radio. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. This drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Our next guest says market leadership this year is very concentrated one side. This was something we talked about a little bit earlier. Uh, in our broadcast, Matt Edder is president at Signet Financial Management based in Parsippany, New Jersey, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Uh, nice to have you here. Thank you, Carol. Thank you for having us in. It's an interesting market environment. Are you getting calls from investors saying, hey, what's going on? Um, well, not really. Not a lot of phone calls. It is a rather interesting market environment. Um, today, you've seen the IMF come out and talk about um, a slowdown possibly in global rates. You've seen trade tariff talk go back and forth. Um, but what you've seen really over the last few months, going back a little bit further, is really a, a huge swing between value and growth companies. Uh, currently, it's probably around 10%. It was up to about 13% where you would see the value companies underperforming growth companies. So today, um, we're not surprised by this. You know, We've kind of expected a rotation out of it. I think when you dig down a little bit further into the growth companies, that's really what people need to focus on. Uh, historically, um, our firm looks at multiple factors to determine on what type of companies we want to put in, whether that's profitability and safety and value components and growth components. Right. But what we've seen this year really is a leadership that's come out of purely one factor inside of a growth component. You've seen really high revenue companies that are really driving returns. So companies that have lots of sales. Of is it just return. FANG that we're talking about or no? No, it's not just FANG. Um, it's really about the top 50 companies that have top revenue growth. Um, now, historically speaking, we've seen this type of trend before. We saw it back in the early 60s. Mm-hmm. Um, where you would run through a period of time. It was about four years there where you saw these top-line revenue growers dominate the market. But then the next 35 years was dominated by much more of a multiple-factor approach to the market. Why are we – is this just a cyclical part, a nature of the market, or why does this happen? That's a great question. Um, I don't know if I would say it's cyclical. I think you're looking more at trade tariffs at this particular juncture. Okay. Um, so this is something that comes into play. So when if you think about trade tariffs from what you hear, more of the herd mentality that we're going to get into a recession because of that, Right. What you're going to find is that people are going to want to go and buy companies that are going to have some type of sales. Now, whether those companies are discounting sales at 30% or 50% off still shows that they had a sale. That doesn't really mesh real well in a long-term time frame. Right. So for our clients, we want to focus on really good value, really good profitability with the company, free cash flow. So when constructing a portfolio for clients, these are the things that we think are most important. Well, it just got, e- got easier to find value today, certainly on the <laughs> yeah. equity side of it things. It certainly has. 
has. In fact, there's some really good um, places to look at. So this rotation is not, um, you know, we've seen the rotation here recently. We've dropped 3 or 4% between that value growth dynamic. And today you can really go out and pick up some really good companies that we think are going to have a nice 3 to 5-year window of growth. Well, tell me, Matt, because one day does not make a trend, but you did mention kind of what we've been seeing over the last couple of weeks or so or a little bit longer. Mm -hmm. um, is this a day where you've been out there buying? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. We've been um, rebalancing portfolios for some of our clients. Um, we've gone through, uh, we, we run multiple different types of um, strategies for clients. We manage all kinds of different assets, whether it's right. retirement or endowment or individual type of money. So yes, I, we've been buying. And I know you're doing things regularly, but I mean, is today a kind of different day where you wake up and say, okay, I'm going to be a, bit, a little bit busier uh, yes, today? Yes, <laughs> we, we have been buying in today's uh, drops. So there are some, we already thought really good value plays in the market, um, and we wanted to add more into those positions. Give me an idea of what you've been buying. I know there's a couple of names that uh, you came in uh, to talk about, um, Alibaba and Jazz. Are these, are, are these names that you've been buying today? Yes. Yeah. And this is something that we and we find that's um, important when looking at companies again multiple factors are what we think in the long run drive good returns so when you take a company like alibaba here's a company that's got great growth potential it's on sale it's down 30 plus percent maybe even a little bit more after today's move in the market so when we're going to go to invest our clients money we're looking for that type of value in a particular company that has a well diversified multiple factor type of an approach right um, so this is a, this is really critical for us to add into it i think when you think of alibaba think of a company um, that pretty much has 600 million different viewers utilizing their products. So this is something where we can pick it up at 30% off. That's great. When we do resolve the trade war, and it will be resolved, um, I think President Trump's talked about this multiple times in the last few days about coming out and saying, hey, they're ready to make a deal with us. The question is, is are we ready to make a deal with them? But when that happens, this is where I start to, you'll start to see some more value from some of these companies that have been beaten up, come back into play. Does it even matter to Alibaba in that the bulk of their revenues is done within China? So does the trade you know, back and forth really matter in the long run? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. It matters. But their, their, their bulk of business, although maybe done in China, is across multiple facets. So Alibaba is kind of like Visa and Amazon, and they're looking to go into all, all in kinds one. of different areas. And there's a lot of B2B with them, right? Yes. And, and that's the thing that you want to look at. And this is the same thing that Bob is doing with their companies, how we construct portfolios. We use a multiple factor approach, as I mentioned, but we buy 30 or 40 companies to get different revenue streams coming from multiple places to right. alleviate a lot of risk. And that's what Alibaba is looking to do. Why are the ADRs down? Though? They're down about 20% so far this year. I mean, it's down about a 6% decline today. Is it the currency factor? Uh, yeah, well, currency and, and trade trade tariffs. I mean, that's that's what the talk has been. Um, there's concern and there's fear. It's, it's, you know, in the market, things get overblown from one side to the other, and right. then they recuperate. So I, I think as we move through here um, and, and start to work out a deal with China, you'll start to see some more stabilization come into that particular area. However, let me just speak again to the IMF and global um, talk today about markets slowing down from a growth perspective. Because I do worry about China, whether yeah. or not we're missing. I know the government's there and they've got some deep pockets where they can really boost and support things. That's but correct. still, I wonder if there's something more going on in China that we're we should be focusing on. Well, and, and that's the thing. One or two or three or five stocks aren't going to make your portfolio. But if you can go and find really good, strong value companies, you should expect volatility. That's what stocks bring to the table. In the long run, they've, they've done very well. 
But, but again, keep in mind when you're looking at a company like Alibaba or any company for that particular matter, you, won't, right. you don't want to follow on just one characteristic that a company just has one thing that's working well. You want a broad-based, stable company that's looking good for the next three to five years. Alibaba projected returns are 35% annualized over the yeah. next three years, trading at a P to 25. Who doesn't I'm, like that? I'm just going to say if you're focusing on one factor, you shouldn't be in the market. That, that is correct. <laughs> you should, kind of you should be looking to call me and uh, get some help. <laughs> uh, Matt Edder, president at Signet Financial Management, right? In that case, actually, just put it under the mattress because if you really aren't looking at yeah. more things. Yeah. He's based in Parsippany in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.